Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And yourself? I'm fine. Great. I'm fine. We're What's here. going on? Well, uh, looking at even the news, the recent news, you know, all these podcasts drop um, a few weeks from now. But I was sad listening this morning to the news of about, uh, about this Chesley Christ, uh, 30-year-old beautiful woman who uh, last week took her life by suicide. She was the former Miss USA and competed in Division I traction, track and field. And uh, the news today was saying her people close to her, even her mother, I think, was speaking out that she was considered... Uh, to be fine. This high-functioning depression, no one knew that she was suffering. And uh, it's always such a shock when somebody takes their life that you just had no idea was so um, so unhappy and so so ill. Uh, I think we're going to have to do a show on that one of these days. Yeah, because definitely. Because I think outwardly, it's like that commercial. You know that drug commercial? I don't know what drug it's for, and I'm not trying to plug any drugs but you know where she they hold up the mask like they're mm-hmm. smiling and then yes. they hold up the mask exactly. and it's got the frown that's what it makes me think of there's so many people suffering on the inside and you mm-hmm. you can't see it on the outside yeah it's just always uh it's so shocking and sad when this happens because they could have been helped but um just never came out never reached out for help so uh very sad but well hopefully find, you know, that we're doing a show for that one, one of these days soon, because like anything, the more you talk about it, the more you know, the more chances are that you can reach out and help someone. Yeah. And for anyone listening, just want them to know that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, we started this podcast because we had so many people reaching out to us that we wanted to get our message out into the world Mm -hmm. to let people, they're just not, know they're not alone. Most important message of all. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to dwell too much on that. We, we can talk about that in another time because today we really have an exceptional guest who is a plethora of resources like you wouldn't believe. So today we're going to have on Nancy Hughes-Moyer, and Nancy is a boss lady. She is the definition of a boss lady for sure. She is the president and CEO of Volunteers of America of Illinois. Her passion for helping people is in her blood. From helping families in crisis to building wraparound services and providing housing to our most at-risk population, she definitely leaves no stone unturned. We are truly grateful to be able to chat with her today. I'm very, very excited. So looking forward to it. Yes. Welcome, Nancy. We're so happy to have Nancy Hughes here today. And, Nancy uh, Hughes Moyer. My husband would want you to work in the Moyer. Okay, Nancy <laughs> Hughes Moyer. Welcome. We're Thank so you. glad Thank to you. have you to and uh, looking forward to a good discussion about Volunteers of America. Oh. I uh, just reading a little bit before this, I learned so much about what, you know, much more than I ever thought Volunteers of America covered. So. Yeah, I mean, you encompass so many things. I guess my first question would be, what inspired you to get into social work to begin with? So it's interesting. I don't, people say, uh, why did you choose this? And I really feel like it chose me um, because I don't remember ever contemplating anything different. 
So, uh, you know, it had a lot to do with my parents and sort of how I was raised and their sense of really uh, service to others and helping people. And uh, that was really instilled in me in a really significant and powerful way. And so I was doing a lot of volunteer work. I mean, whatever was kind of age appropriate at the time. And then as soon mm-hmm. as I knew that this thing called social work existed, like you go get a degree in this thing, I got my bachelor's and my master's in social work and I've been in human services ever since. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so prior to being the CEO and president of Volunteers of America, what did you do before? So most of, I would say, what inspired me um, specifically to do with my social work degree uh, was child welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a lot of time even in undergraduate and, and even in high school in terms of things I volunteered for, was really um, spending a lot of time with kids who were involved with the Department of Children and Family Services. And yeah. so um, that was, for me, a really big uh, personal calling was to get into that space mm-hmm. and really try and have an impact on the child welfare system. And so for the most part, I've been fortunate that everything I've done professionally mm-hmm. um, has always involved uh, child welfare. So I've so before uh, VOA specifically, I was the senior vice president for an organization called Kids Hope United, which is now One Hope United. Um, and I was the senior vice president of general operations there. Most of what we did there was child welfare. Children are, are tough as it is. And dealing with children in the welfare system or ch- children with challenges or children who don't have families, um, that's, a, that's a tough go. Well, and I think that One of the things that's really interesting about working so long uh, in child welfare is that that is the place where, unfortunately, people end up where when everything else in their lives kind of has fallen apart, right? Yes. Nothing's working, unfortunately, terribly well for a child if they're winding up in the child welfare system. Yes. Yeah, that's Um, a tough tough reality. Exactly. I mean, that... You know, sometimes we're obviously fortunate to be able to officially place them with relatives, but but generally speaking, you have a pretty strained, not only obviously their immediate family system is strained, uh, resulting in them coming into child welfare, but their sort of extended network is usually pretty strained too, um, that it's not able to quite absorb uh, all that's happening. So a lot has gone wrong, unfortunately, for kids once they're coming into the um, child welfare system. And uh, mental health is one of mental health issues uh, is one of the sort of specific and most um, sort of profound issues that kind of drive families into the child welfare system. Yeah, I, I can only judge by what I've seen on the front line being a police officer is that we obviously get those calls more often than I'd like where we have to go into the home and the children are left alone mm-hmm. or... Um, you know, are being abused. And just from a personal side, I always feel like there's a mental health component to it because normal people, and I put that in air quotes, right, would want to take care of their children. So that would be their priority. Yes. Well, and I think that even, you know, my experience, there's some exceptions. Lord knows there's some exceptions. But generally speaking, even the families that we're serving in child welfare, everyone actually wants to take care of their kids, right? I mean, I really haven't, fortunately, there's not too many uh, parents that I've met in the system that I think generally just is indifferent, mm-hmm. right? Um, so much of it is about capacity 
and their capacity is significantly compromised because of either a mental health issue, a co-occurring substance abuse issue, a significant trauma history, and absolutely no framework for what it means to be a parent, right? Most of us who had role models and were mm-hmm. raised in a relatively functional family, I say relatively because yes. what? I mean, every family is dysfunctional in its own way. But relatively functional families where our basic needs were met and we had some degree of emotional well-being and we knew where we belonged and we knew uh, that we were going to be taken care of. For even those of us that have had that, right, parenting can be hard. Yes. And parenting can be hard when you add that to other struggles. And, you know, for uh, very often the folks that we're serving in child welfare, it's there's just this giant disconnect between the sort of challenges that they have to endure and the resources that they have available to help them meet those challenges, right? So everything in life, whether it's a just a mental health issue or a substance abuse issue or poverty or divorce or whatever it is, right? Um, All of us have a certain bandwidth, how much Mm -hmm. we can endure. And how we sort of survive setbacks and how catastrophic that setback can, can be for us has almost more to do with what are the resources available to us to get through that. And most of the people that we're serving in our organization, whether it's in child welfare or people with disabilities or uh, our seniors or our veterans who are in crisis, what happens is there's this incredible disconnect and imbalance between sort of the, the weight of the bricks they're carrying and the amount of resources that they have uh, to help them carry those and to, quite frankly, to help them put some down. And that's really what we do is we try and bring that that uh, sort of equation back into some balance where it's not all these challenges and no resources to really help manage it. So, so when somebody is in a situation like that, so overwhelmed with that disconnect, as you, as you say, um, how do they find you? I mean, and how do they find Volunteers of America, the resources that you speak of? So some people, I mean, obviously, if it's child welfare, they're coming to us because DCFS is sending them. Um, but most times people are coming to us because they're a veteran and they've heard about our continuum of resources and maybe they're specifically on the surface. They're homeless, right? And and uh, their most immediate need is that they're looking uh, for housing. Same thing with seniors and, and folks with disability. Um, Homelessness is a big point of interception for us uh, with most of the people that uh, we're, we're serving. But, you know, we have a few other kind of just general um, uh, emergency assistance and those kinds of programs and services. But generally, uh, what brings most people to us is a specific point of crisis. Um, and then and then we try and sort of assess and then unpack what are all these other things that are contributing to this immediate crisis and to what is often kind of a pattern of instability. So so to qualify for what, you know, the services that you're talking about, first of all, people sometimes walk through the door, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, or they're sent by some other agency or Correct. resource. So what are the qualifications so that, for, like homelessness and yeah, I mean one of the things. So one one of the biggest things that people know us for uh, is our housing, our supportive housing, and so such a need, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always say, you know, people say, 
like, oh, you do, you develop a lot of housing. And I sometimes get confused with like, oh, you're like a real estate housing developer. And I, I'm like, I'm a social worker, people. I promise you. I don't know how I started getting into architectural plans mm-hmm. and phase one environmental studies and stuff. Um, that ends up taking up a lot of my time. But it's, it's, it's really because we have um, discovered that there is no greater tool to help people transform their lives than having a really high quality, stable and supportive place to be home. Um, when you don't have that, it is really hard to solve other problems. Yes. Um, and that, and that's why that when you see homeless people on the street, they, they really don't appear mentally stable in many cases. And it's not because those issues are not fundamentally solvable. It's because when you are homeless and you have no structure to your life and you have no foundation and you are completely consumed with surviving from one minute to the next, your foothold in reality and all the coping mechanisms uh, that most of us normally have when we have a certain rhythm to our life is gone. And so it exacerbates uh, what are often pretty solvable and treatable mental health issues for those folks. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like our our society, our system, sets you up to fail. When we deal with our homeless population as police officers, it's like a catch-22. I remember people saying, I need an ID. They need an ID to get whatever, housing or Social Security, or but you can't get an ID until you get a Social Security card, but you can't get a Social Security card until... I mean, it, it's like a catch-22. There was... There was no good way for them to start out, which is how, obviously, I knew about your organization to begin with, working in that field. We would we would direct people to you to help them in those circumstances. Well, it's one of the reasons that part of the sort of tagline, if you will, for um, sort of how we try and describe some of our services is called More Than a Home. Mm-hmm. Because people think that the answer or the sort of specific antidote uh, to homelessness is a door. Uh, and a key, and it's and it's really not. Housing stability is a skill, like anything else, right? Yes. And and people need to sort of figure out a whole new rhythm, right? They yes. develop, quite frankly, a person who's been homeless on the streets uh, for ten years would probably survive better on the street tonight than I would. Yes. That person would become very valuable to me if I found mm-hmm. myself homeless on the street tonight because I have no skill set for surviving mm-hmm. that. Um, but but just like I have no skill set to survive, likely being homeless on the street tonight, they would struggle with how do I function, right, with now all this stability. I don't quite know what to do with myself. Right. Um, and, and a lot of times if they don't have the right level of support, um, they can fail. And then people don't understand that. Well, we put them behind a door, right? Right, um, And we provided them some stability. Why aren't they succeeding? Because they need a lot of support to help develop the skills associated um, with being able to live and get comfortable uh, within that kind of stability. And what does that support look like? I mean, aside from giving them some type of home, I assume that's what you're saying, right? You give them some type of home. And there, there's two different there's two different ways um, that we can actually provide uh, people with supportive housing. The first is where they're actually moving into our housing developments, right? And that's kind of a one-stop shop for pretty much everything that they're going to need for the most part. Either we can provide it to them through case management and emergency assistance and counseling and 
you know, parent classes and employment readiness and all that kind of stuff. Um, or we have the partnerships to help them get that through one of our other partners. Um, and, and so can I just ask sure. you, what is the cost of this? Does this cost them anything? Any of the, I mean, is there to any of what this, what you're offering? No. The roof so over it, their head, the skill set, you know, the skills. Um, the most that it would cost them is 30% of their income would be sort of their copay. If they have no income, it's nothing. Okay. What um, if they're on SSI? It would be 30% okay. uh, of SSI. Okay. So the way that our programs are structured is that um, people never pay more than 30% of their income. That's so good. Uh, uh, towards That's their livable. rent, That's and then and then sense. they don't pay for the services and stuff, right? But we we do think it's important, and generally speaking, research bears this out that if people have some income, it is important to have them mm-hmm. contribute something, right? It, it it promotes a sense of dignity and right. ownership, Self-esteem. and mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and so we just make sure that that's that's managed. And the data out there and the research is very clear that 30% is a very manageable thre- threshold. We talk about being severely rent burdened when people start getting into 50% uh, or higher, yeah. um, where if people are spending those kinds of, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80% uh, of their income uh, on their, you know, just their rent, um, it becomes very impossible to be able to live functionally and have food and transportation and, you know, any kinds of other things that you need to sort of live effectively. Um, do you have requirements of, of making sure that somebody does not have issues with addiction moving into the, these homes? Like, do they have to have some stability or some checklist through Volunteers of America before they could be a part of the housing programming? No. So we we utilize uh, something called harm reduction. And the harm reduction... This is one of your programs. It's a philosophy oh, okay. that, uh, that sort of attaches to all of our programs and services, if you will. And harm reduction, um, sometimes... People, uh, even sort of generally within the field of housing and homelessness and homeless prevention, uh, uh, you know, sort of know this term of harm reduction. And its detractors say, well, there's, that's like some consequence-free environment. And it's not, right? Harm reduction says that people are more likely to get and stay sober and treated effectively for mental health if they have housing stability. And if you further understand that relapse is a part of recovery, Mm -hmm. then you don't want to punish people who are working on recovery but may have a setback, right? So we talk about, uh, you know, harm reduction and really focus on natural and logical consequences. And we will do, uh, we don't require 30 days sober or anything like that before people can enter our programs. Now, they can't walk in the door, in need detox, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's those are mm-hmm. some things. If somebody is in need of really acute medical care, we yeah. will require that first. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we certainly have folks within our programs who, you know, have relapses and have setbacks, and we work really hard to create some accountability structures um, so that you know they will continue to focus on the recovery mm-hmm. and go oh, back wonderful. into services and those kinds of things. So, like Julie said, some programs are set up for failure. This is set up for success. Absolutely. We, we really, you know, um, it doesn't make any sense to make people fail down into services, right? I mean, we really want people, we want to catch them where they are and then help lift them back up. 
not say let's keep creating a new bottom for you. Right. Uh, because quite frankly, that's that's just harder for them and farther for them to have to climb. If we say, you know, because uh, most people look getting sober, treating a mental illness is really hard. Mm-hmm. It, it's really hard. I want people who've done that while they've managed to somehow stay stably employed, while they've had resources around them, while they've had, you know, a house or a, an apartment or whatever that has been available to them for that whole time. Imagine trying to do that tough work of getting sober uh, and, and treating what has been an untreated mental illness. If you were on the streets, yeah. if you were literally right. sleeping right. in a box uh, on Lower Wacker Drive. So we, we don't make that a requirement. Uh, we actually believe their best chance of getting sober uh, and effectively treating their mental illness is going to be a byproduct of stability. It's fabulous. Such a wonderful open door. I mean, this is uh, hard to find what, yeah. you're, what you're offering because sometimes there is just a total catch-22. You just feel like the person wants success in life overall, but they just keep going around in that vicious cycle of events, but this is really something. I love what you're saying. I think it's just Well, and I think generally speaking, yeah, most human services are really trying hard to, to recognize that, um, you know, you, you cannot have this sort of, you know, 500 pound front door, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? That is really hard for people to get into. Um, because that's why, that's when we're going to get more people homeless on the street, um, is when we make the threshold to get well, so difficult and so steep that people just can't do it where i mean we know we're doing something wrong in human services when someone says you know what i think it'll just be easier to stay stay on the street Mm -hmm. than to do what i need to do to get help and Mm -hmm. to get housing then we've really done it wrong yeah then we've got a major problem right when that's they're making that choice just be easier for me to stay where i am well i think the other part of the challenge is a lot of philosophies are if you want help for your mental health, you have to get sober first. And it kind of goes to the old adage, what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? In, in my view, with my personal um, experiences with my, my own son, uh, he needed both treated. Mm-hmm. So you have to have that wraparound service. You can't treat one or the other. You have to treat both. Well, and I, I mean, there are... Again, never say never. There are no absolutes in human behavior ever (laughs) or just in the human experience. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, most substance abuse is self-medicating something. Yes. Right? And it's it's self-medicating either an untreated and undiagnosed Mm -hmm. mental illness or uh, an untreated, unaddressed trauma. Yes. And those two things could also be intricately connected. Mm-hmm. But not everybody that suffers trauma specifically also has a, a, a specific mental health diagnosis other than, you right. know, uh, their their specific trauma experience, which, uh, you know, PTSD and other kinds of things. But um, it, it's, it's unusual, not unheard of, but it's unusual for a substance abuse issue to just emerge out of absolutely nothing. Right? I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. it, it tends to be, in again, in reaction to uh, a significant trauma that's been unaddressed or a specific un- unaddressed and undiagnosed mental health issue. Right. So do you work with families then to bring them back together? Is it, you know, a single person focus or is it a family? It's both. So we, we, we provide a lot of services for both individuals and families. And in families, our goal is to keep the family together. 
by providing a lot of uh, intensive services. And with the individuals, um, very often it's it's like a focus on family reunification, right? Because mm-hmm. um, in many instances, they burned all of those bridges. Yeah. And so um, uh, how do we create uh, enough stability? How do we put enough of the pieces back together um, that we can help them reconnect to that natural support system? Because because really, here's our goal. We don't want people to need us forever, right? We mm-hmm. our, our goal is really... Um, to get Give people, them a new start. Absolutely. Uh, to really get them to a point where they have both the coping mechanisms internally and externally a strong and capable uh, support network um, that can sort of help them move their lives forward. Um, again, when oftentimes when people are coming to us, they have either... They need they have either none of them, either of those two things, or one is in abysmally low supply... Um, or, or both are really teetering. So when, so when uh, you're talking about the goal, which is of course, you know, that's that's great. The goal is is terrific that you've that it, they've created. Is there some sort of finite amount of time for the housing once people get their feet on the ground? I mean, you have to have enough housing to keep going and offering and offering this to all of those in need. When they get stable, are they then sometimes moving out to they've to other places do you do you need them to move out Uh, i wouldn't say that we we need people to um or can uh, they stay there forever some people can okay and some people will uh so uh, again in the way that um our housing is uh really set up and the way our services are set up because i think i didn't finish saying before so when people come to us there's uh, one of two ways that we can provide support. They can they can move into our, our developments, right? Um, or we can uh, provide uh, that support in uh, what we kind of call our community-based care model, which is um, we can help you with rental subsidies. We can help you with case management. We can help you, uh, you know, with uh, sort of therapeutic support. Uh, and But you're not specifically living in one of our facilities. We're going to try and you know, through a rental subsidy and through some other kinds of emergency assistance, we're going to try and find you housing. Uh, but then we're going to kind of wrap some services around you uh, while you're out there. Um, but our goal is to never leave anyone, and I hate to sound sort of kind of corny, but until they're really ready to fly on their own. Um, we don't really have these artificial timelines where like a buzzer goes off. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the only one that we do is uh, really in our, our Hope Hall program. And uh, the nature of that program uh, is, is what's called low threshold, low demand. Um, and it goes back to uh, that sort of harm reduction model. And the low threshold, low demand model says uh, we're going to be working with sort of the toughest of the tough, those who have sort of fallen the farthest, the most chronically homeless, the most uh, uh, chronically co-occurring mental Mm -hmm. health and substance abuse issues. And so many of the folks that we're serving uh, in that program, um, you know, have been living on the fringes for a really long time. And uh, that program says, we're going to put no restrictions on you to walk in the door. You have to be able to walk in the door, though. Yeah. I mean, right? You can't or fall. Get, get in the door. You have to get in the door, right? I mean, again, if you are, if you need detox, we're going to make it help you get that. Um, and then that's the low threshold, right? We're not going to create in these. You got to be thirty days sober. You got to you got to actively say you're going to, you know, uh, commit to sobriety. None of those things. And then the low demand is you got six months. You got six months here. 
um, that our job is to get you ready for another level of intervention, right? Um, that that needs you to be readier and more capable and have a few more skills. So we're, we'll, we we literally in that program can take people off the street, right? Uh, I mean, they have to, and this is, happens to be a program we do in partnership with the VA. So they do have to be a veteran and, and they, uh, you know, do have to, we just have to do some things to make sure they qualify. And uh, also, and I'm assuming they have to want the help. Well, no, we can't, nobody carries factor. them in kicking and screaming. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. No, they, it, it is a voluntary program, so they have to be willing to do that. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing is that because it's this low threshold, low demand model, there's really not a good reason for them not to, right? So low demand says, if you want to spend six months just chilling, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, as long as you are not uh, a risk to yourself, um, and, and, and to somebody else that you don't do anything that's disruptive, uh, to anyone else who's trying to sort of get their lives back together. And, um, so as long as you are not in any way at risk, uh, an active risk to yourself, uh, and in any kind of a risk to anyone else in the work that they're trying to do, um, we will feed you and we'll clothe you and we'll house you and we'll be super nice to you. Um, and if that's all you want to do in those six months, um, that's okay. But we're going to work really hard because while it's a, you need, something needs to be high, right? So yes. if it's low threshold, low demand, something else has got to be in there, right? So it's called low threshold, low demand, high engagement. And so we have to work really hard uh, to incentivize you, to want you to do well, right? That you want yourself to do well, that you can begin with some stability and some people sort of reflecting your value back to you, that you start to become invested in your own well-being enough that you now might constructively start getting involved in services. And then, um, and then you're, you know, at a point where you're like, okay, I'll, I think I'm ready for a longer term plan after six months. Um, and then, you know, that's what we work on. We don't have to kick anybody out of that program. We really don't because people who truly aren't ready, mm -hmm. they go, eh, and they just, they walk out and they don't come back. That doesn't happen very often. Oh, that's good. Um, but, you know, I, it, there's, a, there's a fundamental decency about their calculation. I know I'm not ready for whatever reason, mm -hmm. right? I'm not ready to, I'm not ready to give up using. I'm not ready, you know, and I don't want to waste these people's time. And there might be somebody who is ready. And I don't want to take up the spot. And, you know, uh, sometimes staff get very disheartened by those, you know, uh, when that happens. And I'll say, look, our job is to just keep planting seeds. We don't know when or where. Mm -hmm. You can't the, force someone yeah, to think we can't, a You way. cannot help somebody against mm -hmm. their will, mm -hmm. but we need to keep creating the opportunity because we do not control when those uh, sort of seeds bear fruit. And, and it may be that they weren't ready right now. Uh, but because they were treated with dignity, with respect, with kindness, and again, we reflected their value back to them, in two weeks, in two months, who knows, in two years, when they are ready, they'll remember. And we have people that come back. And the second time, yeah, they're totally ready. How, how rewarding yeah. is that? I mean... 
it could feel like a safety net for mm-hmm. them too. You know, some some people just have to process it. I right. would think like you just you know it seems very overwhelming at first, and maybe they need to take a step back and think about it. And well, trust is. I was just going to say it's mm-hmm. also trusting. You know, they've been through so much. Their life is one big trauma every day. Then they're off the streets, and then they're kind of probably staying back like what. Well, you know, you'd be amazed. Again, most of us who've never been homeless go, why would anybody want that? It's an incredible distraction, right? I mean, it is, you are so consumed and focused on, you know, one minute to the next, one hour to the next, that, you know, in some ways there's some things you just don't have to think about and you don't have to face. Like maybe a really traumatic past. A really traumatic past, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's part of it, right? There is something about, you know, Staying out on the streets and uh, and musing and not treating that mental illness, uh, assuming all three of those things are at play, and it it really helps facilitate denial in a way that some people mm-hmm. feel like they need for for some period of time. It's it's a terrible way to live, and it's you know so we need to keep working to get to a place where people don't feel like that's my best choice right now. Um, but it is true that you cannot help people against their will. Yeah. Um, but again, I, when I was, I remember when I was in school and there's, I think it's, uh, Thoreau has this, uh, sort of poem and it says, while I do not believe a, a tree will sprout where no seed has been planted, I have great faith in a seed, uh, convince me you have a seed there and I'm prepared to expect wonders. And I really profoundly believe that, right. I love that, that. that if you, it, 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 in, in, so much of the work of human services, it's not like a Hallmark movie. It's, you know, it's really not. And it's, it, it's not like, and you probably say, police work is not like law and order, right? No. We don't like, we don't like tie these things up in a bow in 60 minute increments. And human services isn't like that. We don't have all these, you know, really clean, tight, happy endings that happen in a straight line. Mm-hmm. It's patience. Yeah. It, it really very rarely happens in a straight line. Um, but we can never stop trying because while we might not solve everything or fix everything or save everything, everyone, whatever that means, we certainly uh, will do far less of that if we don't try. So, uh, you know, I, I am just a big proponent in, you know, we cannot measure uh, our success exclusively on, you know, how many outcomes at the end of one 12-month period because um, different people are sort of ready at, at different times. And success looks different. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, uh, for instance, just going back to the veterans, um, the success we're going to have with a 70 year old Vietnam era veteran who has probably been self-medicating since the 70s mm-hmm. and also has now significant chronic mental, uh, I'm sorry, medical issues, mm-hmm. um, in addition to some untreated uh, mental health issues, um, it, it, that that picture of success is going to look a lot different than a 30-year-old uh, with PTSD who's got some work skills, he's got uh, their physical health still largely intact, and has not, um, you know, had five decades of substance abuse. Right. Right? What, what we can do uh, in terms of what success might look like for that individual um, is different than uh, uh, the other person, the former. But the point is they all deserve the best life possible. And so how do we work with them to figure out what does that look like 
for you. And uh, for the older person with a lot of chronic mental health issues and, and certainly uh, often a lot of chronic medical issues and health issues, um, it's uh, how, do we, how do we get the addiction addressed? How do we try and treat some of the mental health issues? How do we get your physical self to the point where it's comfortable and functional? And then how do we allow you to live whatever days you have left in community mm-hmm. and in connection with other people? Um, and again, that looks different than the 30-year-old who we may be able to get a job, get housed, you know, get relationships, become a parent. I mean, I, we don't make them a parent, by the way. So <laughs> we don't have any programs that are involved in, uh, you know, procreating. But, I mean, that, that's a person that, you know, uh, can, can, you know, create total abundance, right, mm-hmm, uh, sure. in many cases. Um, and so it's also not quantifying one outcome over another and saying this has to be the quality of life we achieve for every single person. Yes. Because they're all starting at different places with different challenges. So I'm so impressed with how relevant Volunteers of America, of America stays to what's going on. I mean, you're looking, you're like to the minute practically, you're saying all of these different scenarios, even looking at, you can't just say a program for veterans, a program, you're looking at the ages, just what you described. Did, didn't it start like in the late 1800s or something, Volunteers of America? It's really old, isn't yeah, it? It's a well, very old organization. Um, I, yeah, I always tell jokes. People go, oh, you know, how long have you been around? Since the 1896, I look pretty yeah, good I, for that, don't I? I, I? Was, um, I once read that. I was so surprised. So when it first started, um, why did it? Why did it begin? So we were we were founded in uh, 1896, actually March of uh, 1896 to be terribly specific. And uh, we were founded, um, and this is what most people don't realize, is that we were founded by the son and daughter-in-law uh, of the man who created the Salvation Army. So the Salvation oh, Army was created oh. in England. And Maud and Ballington Booth was uh, uh, that guy's uh, son and daughter-in-law. And they actually came here to the United States from England to run the Salvation Army in the United States. And uh, it's, it's really sort of a fascinating uh, interesting. piece of history, but the, the father and the son got in a bit of a squabble, <laughs> uh, sort of over how money raised in this country should be used. Okay. And the, the father sort of... Could well, happen today. Yeah, okay. could happen today, yeah. I mean, it was sort of a uh, sort of a federal versus state rights kind of mm-hmm. a thing, and the father believed in sort of having all the resources concentrated and controlled at, in the central uh, sort of headquarters there in England. And the son really felt... He and his wife were relatively young when they uh, came here and started the Salvation Army here, and they fell in love with this sort of social experiment of democracy in the United States. And uh, and, and really became really passionate about their adopted country. And they really felt strongly that the money raised here should go to exclusively uh, services and, and uh, programs for people here. And the father did not necessarily agree. And um, his response to that was to try and reassign them back to England. They said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to go ahead and start our own like national ministry wow. of service that's that's specific and unique to this country How and so they started they started the, uh, the volunteers of america and you know um it's funny they their biggest kind of boosters if you will um their biggest funders uh at the time and it, it started because of obviously their work with salvation army was like the rockefellers and john astor and oh, yeah. we, i mean because we were they were founded in uh, new york 
Mm -hmm. And so if you were a New Yorker with lots of money, Mm -hmm. you were sort of hobnobbing with the booths. Um, And so, yeah, they started this organization called the Volunteers of America. And uh, we we kind of eclipsed uh, in the early 1900s um, uh, the Salvation Army. I mean, more people sort of knew who we were. When that changed uh, was in the, particularly the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, actually both war efforts, one and two, but certainly two. Uh, the, both, the, so the Salvation Army did continue under different leadership. Uh, and, and it was funny, there was a time when human services, like the presidents kind of knew the heads of these you know, human service organizations. And so the president literally said during the war effort, well, Salvation Army, you can go overseas but, but Volunteers of America, we want you to stay kind of here on the home front and sort of take care of people here during the war effort. And that was certainly a noble cause, and it has a lot to do with our historical connection to serving veterans, because a lot of times, it's you know, so interesting. Yeah, so our work was very much connected uh, to folks when they came home. But most people remember Salvation Army because their grandparents and, and yeah. uh, you know, uh, whatnot remember Salvation Army, like being present on the, at the war front, mm-hmm. right, on the war front. And so in the sort of consciousness of America, Salvation Army is just a name Mm-hmm. Uh, that that people remember uh, a bit better. We're working on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we are certainly working on sort of rebuilding um, a lot of that uh, name recognition that Salvation Army was able to have by just having a very different role in the war effort. Yeah. So so fast forward now. I mean that that's so interesting that story. Are, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Are you national? We it's are. Well, it's a okay. national ministry of service, yeah. Right, but you're based in, in yeah, Chicago? Yeah, so we're VOA Illinois. Oh, okay. They're state um, And so uh, we, and, and they're really separate. Uh, so particularly uh, oh. uh, around the 19, around the 1980s. So up until about the 1980s, it was more of a centralized national, this national organization that had what we used to call posts. Mm-hmm. It was very, it was the model of governance was much more similar to the Salvation Army. But, like, you won't really hear a Salvation Army of Des Plaines or a Salvation right. Army of Ohio. It's the Salvation Army. Um, and, and up until the 80s, this organization kind of ran with that much more centralized governance model. Uh, and and um, wherever the uh, services were, were called posts. So Illinois would have been a post, mm-hmm. um, you know, back at, uh, as, as recently as the 80s. And then the 80s, they went to this... Uh, much more modern VOA did uh, sort of uh, style of nonprofit governance where there's just a a national organization and then there's all these separate affiliates that get chartered. So, so when the name volunteers of America, do you take on a lot of volunteers? Is it all volunteer based? I don't think we take on any more or less than most human services Mm do. Right. Uh, I mean, if the listening audience is amazing, this is just such a, Yes, yeah, so we have, we have over, if they're interested in volunteering and they there, can and we you know what we, are the opportunities so we use volunteers that help as mentors service projects they do <clears throat> events with our kids um we i mean if somebody wants to volunteer we find what's their passion and we try and link them to that i like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so there's all different ways we use volunteers but the name unfortunately, is a holdover from 1896. Mm-hmm. Oh. And uh, it, it was, they, they picked that Volunteers of America at a time when that, you remember, you know, war was kind of this constant part of everyone's consciousness back at that time. And so there was this, it was kind of the idea when they came with that name was that it was this volunteer army. 
people uh, volunteering got it. Oh, got it. to be a part of this national ministry of service, right, to their sort of fellow citizen. Hmm. And so um, that's how you got volunteers, people choosing mm-hmm. uh, of America. That makes sense. Um, and, you know, how could they have possibly known in 1896 that that name was going to, that, that term volunteers was going to have a totally different meaning uh, you know, in 2022, we struggle with that as our name because, um, uh, you know, a lot, and that's why we kind of go with VOA Illinois, mm-hmm. um, cause then we're not forever explaining. So what you like recruit and just place volunteers at like, <laughs> like, you know, walks and runs and yeah. stuff. Yeah. No, we don't do that. That's not what we do. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, that's what it meant back then. We've had the name for 120 plus years, over 125 years. And so, you know, you don't want to just abandon it. No, it's no. Um, the identification it's, it's really, yeah, is so important. Yeah, it's part important. of our legacy. So much, yeah. Um, but uh, we do run as a completely separate 501c3 from every other affiliate. So we've got okay. our own local board of directors. Obviously, myself as its own uh, CEO. You're their their fearless leader. Oh, you're very nice. We, I mean, our <laughs> own balance sheet, and and uh, uh, you know, our we we do have sort of a general national charter which is pretty broad. And, and as long as we're operating kind of within that broad one, we can really, and anything really within human services uh, uh, is appropriate, but we really have to forge our own path uh, as a, as a local affiliate. They don't, they don't resource us. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have to develop our own balance sheet and, Mm -hmm. you know, our own resources and figure out what, because the, one of the things that I do think was really powerful about Maud and Ballington Booth, and I think that there's not enough kids these days called Ballington, right? I'm no. Gonna, <laughs> I just put a plug in for Not that, that name. I know of. Yeah, let's try and get a I resurgence for, no. for Ballington. Yeah. Uh, Bal like, or anyone I know. Yeah, I, I mean, so. you know, like Grace and mm-hmm. Hannah, those yeah. were very old yes. names uh-huh. at one time that got a resurgence. So I'm here Even to plug. Maud is still around. It, yeah. It's still around, right. But Ballington seems to have officially gotten <laughs> retired. Uh, but one of the things that they literally in the founding... On this day in March of 1896, uh, uh, in this sort of square, this public square where they announced the creation, is they said, you know, our, our goal is to go wherever we are needed and do whatever comes to hand. And that's been a really interesting phenomena about uh, VOA, which I really love, is that it's not at all prescriptive, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's let's not say that we're only going to do one thing and we're going to do one thing forever, it, it, that those words are really about um, uh, really striving to be relevant mm-hmm. and to do so what's crucial. most yeah do what's most needed uh, for for the people that you're serving and and that's what we do so you know um, uh, people ask me a lot about why did you choose veterans because not nobody was working on that uh, you know quite frankly people don't realize the person that really created a national conversation around veterans. And mm-hmm. particularly homeless veterans, was John Edwards hmm. before all of his oh, other I unfortunate no sort idea. of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> setbacks. Mm-hmm. But but during the oh. in the run up to the 2008 election when he was uh, um, a candidate, uh, one of the platforms he ran on was the sort of the two Americas, and uh, one of the sort of exhibit A's uh, to the two Americas was he talked about 200,000 veterans homeless on the street uh, on any given night, and suddenly people went, "Wow, that." That doesn't seem right. right, and he did. That was that really captured uh, as it should. Uh, yeah, the attention as and poor kids go away it, exactly. And fight for our country. Well, and it was what was even worse is that it, we had left. I mean, so many on the proverbial battlefield from Vietnam. I mean, yes. a lot of those folks oh, yes. were been you know have we been have a whole different conversation exactly. On that. 
and so um, I, I really thank him for that. Now, we were we were sort of getting in that space already. I started doing that in like 2007. Um, but but he really created a whole sort of national conversation about that that resulted in uh, a real mobilization of resources around that issue. And uh, again, we had thousands of veterans homeless on the street at any given night just in the city of Chicago. And today that number is less than 500. I was just going to ask you, do you have any wow. statistics of how that went down? That's, yeah, I mean, that's it, really something. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would even argue it's probably a little bit less than three. Uh, um, but, but, you know, I mean, human beings yes. are not uh, sort of, um, you know, fixed uh, entities and experiences, right? So the number can move a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, we're pretty close to what we call functional zero, where, you know, the number of uh, veterans that become homeless at any given time, we think that we've got pretty adequate resources to catch them, right? Uh, and and so, you know, I think that in 15 roughly odd years, we have effectively solved it. Now, people think, well, solving it means there's probably nobody almost on the street, uh, who's a veteran. That's Mm -hmm. not, there's a, there's an equation here where we can essentially society still manages to keep producing people (laughs) that are homeless, but we have uh, a pretty robust system of resources to catch them. Uh, And so that, that tells us that these are solvable problems, but it requires concentration. And Mm -hmm. so to your earlier question, one of the uh, things that we are working on really actively right now in terms of a population that we think is uh, really being ignored um, is uh, women in particular who are struggling with addiction and have children. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much collateral damage there. Um, and these women so overwhelmed. Right. Like you said, so important that you said they want to take care of their children like anybody. Mm-hmm. But this is, there's so many challenges in the way. Absolutely. Like their their love and their you know, their their love and their goals for their children are the same with loving care and t- just taking basic care of them, but they just are overwhelmed with challenge. Well, in the I mean, people don't realize that, you know, with the sort of opioid crisis, how sort of disproportionately affected women are in some ways. Women are prescribed opioids at a significantly yeah. higher rate. Uh, than men are. I didn't um, know that. Yes, and they and so as a result, they are at a far greater risk uh, of of uh, opioid uh, dependence and, and opioid abuse. Fact. And uh, you know the the rate of opioid overdoses amongst women is actually accelerating faster than men. I mean, they're both through the roof, literally. Um, and so people go, "Why are you working so hard on this right now?" I was like, "Well, because of our child welfare work and everything else that we're doing, uh, this is a very unique problem." with a very unique set of issues because of kids, right, Um, uh, being involved and then sort of really the need uh, to sort of have a very specific housing strategy for this population. But we've been working on it uh, uh, for some time, and then we really hit the accelerator um, after that sort of first year of COVID because once we had 12 months of data from the beginning of COVID until the spring of 2021, um, uh, the the sort of... uh, the reality was really clear what we'd been experiencing anecdotally was that um, the, the 12 months from March of 2020 to, you know, uh, March of 2021, the deadliest 12 months in recorded history for drug overdoses. Wow. That is just plain sad. Yeah. It's so sad. It's just another. It breaks my heart. That is so sad. And well, just and another. Uh, yeah. 
horrific and factor of, of events the, that happened of the, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, look, there's a lot of problems that are tough and, uh, you know, are not easy to solve. But there's no question that when the buzzer rings and somebody's gone, we have no ability to solve that problem, right? Yes. And so uh, that that's what's a really challenging trajectory in terms of particularly addiction, um, is that, uh, you know, you have people who are at risk of just suicide anyway, right? And then you combine that, you know, they're, they're sort of particularly their uh, addiction of choice, particularly now with fentanyl and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, uh, just such a high risk uh, of, of fatal overdose. Um, and so we desperately uh, want to try and interrupt that cycle. And so we are working really hard to um, develop uh, support, permanent supportive housing for women with addiction, uh, with children. We, we actually had a site, uh, and we were making really good progress, um, on, uh, actually we have on our Hope Manor Joliet campus. Um, and, uh, un- unfortunately because of some of this, not my backyard stuff, oh, yeah. uh, oh. uh, that got, uh, sort of out. derailed. Yeah. Um, and so we are, um, kind of back to the drawing board, um, and again, I am a person of great faith, and so I have to believe that all of that happened for a reason, and something somehow mm-hmm. something better <laughs> uh, than what I'm we were working kind of, on. I'm there. that person too. Yeah, there like, has to be. There to, has to be. You have to take the silver lining, move on, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, it was um, meant to be somewhere else. Yeah, right. Um, or somehow in this pause, we're getting more support or something. I, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, I will tell you, uh, developing. Housing, for as powerful of a tool as it is to really solving big problems and transforming people's lives, it is it is a really heavy lift um, mm-hmm. because no matter who we're serving, what we're trying to do, how much people love our developments once they're open. I mean, it, like everyone wants yeah. to come and, you know, groups want to come and they want to do things there. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, we are we are really well embraced uh, in communities and neighborhoods once we're there it is so hard to get supportive housing built yeah the approval yeah from yes because uh as as humans misunderstood beings, it's very misunderstood and as yeah. human beings we react uh from uh, a place of fear uh, you know that which we don't know that which we don't understand must be bad mm-hmm. well i think people think they're going to have a lot of Addiction then spreading into their community. They're going to see people shooting needles in their arm on the corner. They can't take their kids to the park. I mean, and that's unfortunate, but I think that's what what media puts out there, right? Movies and television, and and that is obviously not the reality. Well, I mean, the reality is, yes, some people do drugs, put needles in their arms, and uh, but the but what's profoundly more true is that um, not housing people with issues does not lessen right. street homelessness. It mm-hmm. actually only increases, increases it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the answer uh, to people uh, being on the street and engaging in those kinds of behaviors is not less services and support. Yeah. It's actually more. And so I always say to people, look, when we when we decide we're going to put a particular development here or there, we're not busing people in from someplace else, right? We we make sure that, that in terms of the the, the problem we're trying to solve, that it truly exists in this location, right? And so we're just trying to provide support and services to a problem that we it's know so already logical. exists here, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and so the question you have to ask yourself is, do you want these folks here with no support and no services, or do you want 
uh, uh, you know, a, a program here that can help these folks lift their lives back up. I think people want to believe that it's not, it's not, it's not my backyard. Right. It's not happening here. Don't tell us it's happening yeah, here. We don't problem. think it's, it's a happening. Big problem. I think they they dig their head, uh, put their head in the sand a lot for that. Unfortunately, well, yeah. Hopefully, we've had some listeners that will then talk about this and talk about it to one person and the next to yeah. have this be another changer of that situation. I Absolutely. mean, you're you're just terrific. It's, oh, thank you. I feel like we could sit here all day and listen to to this these you're you such know, a pioneer in this field it's 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 mind-blowing that they're lucky there are to not have other you. people doing this type of work out there well or i think not i mean enough. i think yeah i, I mean i no think one. it's probably more like a, a not, enough, not uh, enough because you know fortunately you know uh we can't do everything that needs to be done for everyone we're serving and we do we do have a lot of uh really good partners i, I you know i think uh for me personally i just you know i've been in this work for a really long time. Mm -hmm. It shows. Um, <laughs> I've, I've seen a lot and um, uh, I've tried a lot. And so I just, I have a pretty good sense of what works, what doesn't work. Um, and uh, again, I just, the only thing that I can honestly say that means more to me than, than being a mom is doing this work. You can uh, tell. I mean, I, I literally, uh, I can't, I can't imagine uh, doing uh, anything else. I mean, it's really been all I've ever wanted to do was to try and find some way uh, to help people and, and to make a difference. You know, yeah. again, I get accused of a lot of funny things because on the kind of real estate development side, you know, people can get really mad at me and they think that they have me figured out and, and it's, I'm not that complex. <laughs> I mean, I'm really, <laughs> I just, I just want to help people uh, who are suffering. Yeah. So, that's that's what we're doing well, here. Yeah. This amazing organization, Volunteers of America, is lucky to have you. Yes. Oh, really, you're very you kind. Really, uh, and if, very kind. If people want really to reach out or, or find you or find the organization, where do they go? So voaillinois.org okay. is the best place to start. Okay. Um, your journey begins there. I think that that's somebody else's. Uh, <laughs> okay. yeah, that's maybe okay. maybe right. it's Michigan. That's I'm okay. not sure. Hopefully Michigan doesn't sue me. But yes, your journey begins at voaillinois.org. Well, thank Great. you so much thank for being you. here. Absolutely. I, I hope, loved it. I, I loved it. Thank you so much. I hope we can have you back. Right. Anytime. Anytime. Yeah, there's obviously more to talk about. Absolutely. Yes. Always. Always. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank, thank you, you both very much. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor@mail.com. That's behindourdoor@mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.